Welcome back to the Cineposium Podcast. I'm Martin Ibarra-Ramos. And I'm Alex Apicella. Thank you for joining us for episode three of our third season of the show. In case this is your first time joining us, we've already discussed two great films this season, Fire Walk With Me and Batman Mask of the Phantasm. So if you haven't listened to those episodes already, please go back and check them out after you finish with this one. Now, Alex, why don't you let them know how the show works? Absolutely. So, every week we invite members or collaborators of Cineposium to curate a film for remote viewing, and we have a conversation about that film on the podcast. New episodes will be published every Thursday with various members from Cineposium coming on to discuss the films of our weekly curators. This week we have a very special episode, another one for this season. We have two curators curating a special animation double feature and a special guest as well. So... Reed is going to be uh, presenting uh, Wallace and Gromit and the Curse of the Were-Rabbit. And Martin is going to be presenting the fantastic Mr. Fox. We have our special guest is Olivia Baylor, who comes in from the animation program. Feel free to introduce yourselves. Hey, Alex. Hey, Martin. Hey, Olivia. Glad to be back on the show. Hey, everyone. Uh, Glad to be here. Uh, Yeah, I'm in the animation program at UCLA, and I'm super excited to be talking about two really great uh, animated features. Yeah, so a little background on the episode, um, you know, our esteemed co-host and podcast producer here, Martin, had uh, the original idea of doing kind of a fall-themed episode uh, with Fantastic Mr. Fox, Um, and I had the realization that, um, you know, one of my beloved kind of childhood um, film properties, Wallace and Gromit, also had kind of a fall-themed episode. feature film so we thought it'd be a lot of fun to do those together um before we get too deep into the discussion of both films uh i would like to hear olivia break down um stop motion animation a little bit you know maybe some of us have kind of a rudimentary understanding of how that medium works but would you mind olivia just going into a little more detail of you know how stop motion animated works um you know the difference between like claymation and maybe puppet kind of stop motion and you know all that good stuff yeah absolutely uh yeah there's so many different types of stop motion um i think um in terms of the basics you know you have you have a puppet or you have something made out of clay and you're moving it in incremental ways um and you're capturing each of those increments with the camera and then you play it all back together and you have a smooth motion um i think that Usually you build up like an armature. Uh, So you have like a wire frame built for your character and you kind of build on top of that. Um, So yeah, you can kind of choose your material, but um, yeah, so you can build it up with clay to kind of uh, build the skin. And that way you can easily move um, each part of the the character. Um, Something else that I think a lot of people don't realize is you don't have one character. You're not just using one character. You have multiple versions of that character. You may have like multiple different eyes that you're swapping out like at each different uh, camera move Um, or like you have different heads that you swap out um, depending. (laughs) So it can get very, very complicated. If you you see like the sets of some of these stop motion places, like they're just like filled with all of these like little little contraptions and um, everything that they built for these sets, it's really, really crazy. Um, So yeah, I think that both of these films uh, kind of use different different approaches to stop motion um, in terms of materials. 
um, and even cinematography as well. So it'll be interesting to get more into that. Yeah, you know, on that note of cinematography, um, one kind of question I had, you know, maybe you can answer before we get into the specific films is like, so when when there's like a zoom or a tracking shot, those are all, again, just individual photographs of the the models and just like so like there's one and then it moves slightly to the left or whatever kind of direction is that how that works that sort of just blew my mind watching that like how much more complicated doing like a tracking shot or a zoom could be for one of these films yeah so just how just like how the characters move incrementally also does the camera so usually you have like a different i think usually you have like different people doing both i mean like you really have to plan these shots, like, because um, otherwise they take so much time um, to plan. Um, so yeah, just like just like the characters move, the cameras also move incrementally, for the most part. Wow, yeah, that is uh, that does just give me more of appreciation of just how you know, like you said, like how much planning goes into these, and um, you know, you always hear how these projects take like years to make. Um, so yeah, thanks so much for that that background information, and um, I'm sure a lot of that's gonna you know come into play as we get into the specifics specifics of the film. So um, to move into our first feature that we're talking about today, it is a uh, Wallace and Gromit, uh, Curse of the Were Rabbit. from 2005 so it's its 15th anniversary this year which is cool we get to to talk about it for anyone not familiar Wallace and Gromit are I guess in a way kind of like the Mickey Mouse of Aardman uh, animation which is a um, animation studio in the UK that focuses primarily on stop-motion animation though they have done some other um, types as well and uh, starting back in the 70s um, this studio began, they actually did the stop motion animation for um, Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, which is like considered one of the all time great (laughs) music videos. Um, And then moving into the eighties is when Nick Park joined, uh, who came up with the characters Wallace and Gromit, which is this, um, (laughs) I don't know how to describe him. This, I guess kind of middle-class, um, uh, British man and his dog, uh, Gromit. Um, and they go on these adventures. Um, and before, they had previously starred in three made-for-TV animated shorts. Um, and two of those, uh, a grand, or pardon me, two of those, The Wrong Trousers and... Um, oh, I'm blanking on the other title now. Um We'll figure that out later, but the, they won uh, the Academy Award for uh, Best Animated Shorts, and then Wallace and Gromit Curse of the Were-Rabbit would go on to win Best Animated Feature. So Ardman is this really influential and critically acclaimed and commercially successful kind of animation studio, and I really didn't realize that until doing some of this research. Um, uh, that, that could be just because they had this deal with DreamWorks, and that's how we had um, 2005, uh, Curse of the Were-Rabbit is, is how that, um, came into effect because DreamWorks, uh, distributed the film. Um, so it was really cool. This is the first time audiences got to see these characters on, on a big screen. 
uh, which was really exciting. Even though I was like a teenager at the time, I, I loved these other Wallace and Gromit films so much as a kid that I was even still kind of excited to see it as like a teenager. Um, so just real quickly, the plot of the film is uh, Wallace and Gromit, they own this uh, anti-pest um, uh, company, Anti-Pesto, uh, to give you a sense of the kind of humor that's in these films. Um, and they humanely um, extract rabbits from eating the town people's vegetable, uh, which is very important because every fall there's this huge vegetable competition, or veg if you're British, I guess. Um, there's this huge competition that they've done every year. And uh, during an accident where Wallace, who is this very eccentric inventor, uh, during an accident where he's trying to actually rehabilitate these rabbits to not eat vegetables, there's this whole mind meld thing, and then this mysterious creature starts to appear and uh, eat everyone's vegetables. Uh, and so they have to figure out what's going on. Um, if you've seen other uh, horror films, you can guess this is a parody of, you know, the werewolf character. Um, except for this time, it's it's a were-rabbit. Uh, it's a, this giant bunny, <laughs> which, you know, is a little... Which is definitely cuter and, and you know, more accessible for, for a younger audience. Um so before we uh, talk about the film too much, I'm curious just to hear everyone's personal reactions to either revisiting the film or seeing it for the first time and just uh, curious to hear sort of your relationship with it. I will start. Um, so uh, first, uh, the um, funny coincidence for me, this is actually my first time watching the film, but I, I do actually own it. And I'm, so I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, I think I may have uh, picked it up uh, at a discount uh, like bookstore where they have like a DVD rack. I think that's where it came about. And so anyways, something, uh, you know, sparked in my mind, uh, as I was mentioning before we started recording that, um, you know, earlier when I wanted to watch the film, I thought, I think I have this actually, and I found it. And so I had the DVD and I watched it that way. Um, and uh, I really, really enjoyed this. Um, I, I do have this um, fascination and and with and love for stop motion animation i'm a big fan of like the leica films and um something that i wanted to mention before was that the, at uh, universal studios hollywood there was this like leica sort of event in which you could see um a, a lot of their puppets and some of their sets uh you know up close in person and it was it was really neat to see the detail um that goes into these things and the size and scale of some of them i was actually really surprised that just just how sort of massive some of these things were um but so to get to this film i um i don't believe i've actually seen anything of wallace and gromit so this was my sort of introduction to this world and i i was just delighted honestly it was uh i i was cracking up the, the humor feels like it was targeted for me because i'm such a kid at heart uh and so i, I feel like i got both the children's humor and the adult humor uh just just working in full effect um, you know, and it's such a clever and, and witty film uh, for me. I feel like so many of the set pieces just work for me, like the opener. I, I think I'm going to bring that up a little later on as well. But the opener for me was right immediately. I sort of understood, OK, this is totally for me because um, just how things were developing and to see this 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 sort of home and this this whole setup that, that Wallace has made for himself and his dog to sort of wake them up in the morning. I just loved that whole thing immediately. So um, 
you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I uh, had a lot of fun with it. And, and the whole parodies um, thing, which we'll get into as well, I uh, and we'll pick apart. I, I picked up on a few um, I really enjoyed as well. So that's uh, I'll leave it at there for now, but really enjoyed it. Yeah, I can talk about my uh, relationship too. Um, yeah, I really love Wallace and Gromit. Um, I have since I was a kid. Um, I really, I just love the, I love the intricacies of it. I love these crazy like Rube Goldberg machines that, that he makes to just get out of bed, just eat, <laughs> just to eat breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, it cracks me up every time. Um, I think this was my, probably my second time seeing this film. It's been a really long time since I saw it the first time. Uh, but yeah, the humor is still mostly held up for me. <laughs> I love the craziness of it. Um, if I'm being honest, though, I would say that one thing that maybe changed about my viewing of it was like the jokes about women, I suppose. <laughs> like there were a lot of um, those kind of jokes, which I, I don't think I don't think those held up as, as much um, from the time that it came out to me. Um, but overall, I still love Wallace and Gromit, and um, I think it's a great, it's a great, and great film, great for Halloween, and it's a really good fall film. Yeah, I, I definitely am having like a like Olivia Martin combined experience here with uh, Curse of the Were Rabbit. Um, I had not seen this film before. Um, I'd seen pieces of it. This was like one of those films that like I definitely had seen like just kind of playing on the TV occasionally, like if you're just flipping through channels um, around this time of year maybe even like closer to um I, I feel like the last time i saw a clip was actually closer to thanksgiving i think it was playing near thanksgiving um as like a more generalized fall movie rather than like a halloween specific kind of movie um but yeah no this was this was like the first time that i actually like sat down and i watched the whole thing through um yeah 100 percent with like the rube goldberg machines <laughs> like i think that that's like that was like so like interesting to just kind of watch because it puts like a lot of stuff happening on the screen and it's like such a small little detail uh a lot of the humor was like really funny but yeah just like you said olivia it's kind of like a a little bit outdated you know um but it it is a movie now that's like 15 years old (laughs) so like i'd be shocked if i didn't see anything in it that was like you know uh not quite there um and yeah, no, I thought it was it was interesting, like watching this like as an adult, um, particularly because like um, like being a, a horror movie fan like I am um, was noticing like a lot of like just really subtle, like tiny little bitty references to other horror films, uh, even just like within like the opening scenes where like um, what's the name? is the dog Gromit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like in the opening scene where like uh gromit is going to cut the carrot up for the rabbits he like lifts the knife up and then the uh music plays like a little cue to uh the psycho music very briefly like right before he brings the knife down on the carrot it's like a lot of like really subtle stuff that i i, I love i think this is a good uh a good movie for the season yeah, I'm glad you bring up the horror element out of it, Alex, because I did want to talk to you a bit about that as, you know, uh, one of our resident horror uh, scholars. Um, because, yeah, I, I was noticing, especially now having seen more horror movies than when I originally saw the film, it seems like there's, you know, lots of references to, like, you know, not just werewolf movies, but, like, like you said, Psycho with the carrots, Um yeah, it seems like maybe even Frankenstein, like when with the machinery and you see the roof open up. Um, oh, there's even another one that that um, 
crossed my mind as I was watching, but I, I was curious to, to hear your thoughts of like this film as a, like, you know, talking about horror parodies, like a little bit more generally, like how this one fits into that tradition and yeah, just other kind of notable, you know, jokes it makes at the genre's expense. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like it's doing a lot. Um, and like, again, cause this is like my first time seeing it. I haven't really, you know, been able to do like a super deep dive into it. Usually like if I was working on a film like this, that is so referential and such like a parody on the genre, this would be something I would have to watch like twice, maybe like three times to try to like uh, suss out all the little things. Um, but yeah, like I think probably like the biggest, um, like the biggest intervention that it's doing is probably into like the hammer horror films specifically just because it is so contextually like an English film. Like this is, this is British. And so like when we're talking about British horror, we do hammer horror and it's things just like the, the whole idea of not just having like a werewolf, but having like this massive over-exaggerated werewolf is so hammer horror like they were like class a cheese like a hundred percent of the time like their films some of them are absolutely ridiculous and it's like how many concepts can we combine into like a single concept to make this crazy insane horror film and so i feel like just every time wallace and gromit just like stacks another thing onto um their horror reference it just it becomes closer and closer to hammer Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because in my research, it mentioned Hammer films, and I don't know if I've seen a single one of those. So I, you know, I'm definitely curious now. So it's it's nice to have a little background animation or (laughs) background information about (laughs) about that studio. So, uh, yeah, uh, I think we're going to be talking a little bit more about this film as we kind of bring both of them together and talk about similarities and differences. So I'll go ahead and pass... uh, it on to Martin, who's going to talk to us a little bit about Fantastic Mr. Fox. Thank you, Reed. Uh, so, yeah, this was the original idea I had to program for the fall sort of season um, because this is one that I've recently uh, started watching around this time actually last year I think I played this for the family at like Thanksgiving dinner and everyone just sort of like you know collected around the TV just coincidentally and I think all right like I'm pretty proud of myself this was this felt good so um, you know it it felt natural to potentially bring it up for the podcast so Um, To get started, we'll uh, get into a little bit of an overview of Wes Anderson um, in case anyone's unfamiliar or, you know, could use a little background on him. He's the creative mind and filmmaker behind uh, films such as Rushmore, The Royal Tenenbaums, Moonrise Kingdom, The Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, and of course, Fantastic Mr. Fox. And um, he does have another stop motion animated film that comes a little later on called Isle of Dogs. Um, Not really talking about that one too much, though, focusing on Fantastic Mr. Fox here. So... He's known for his, you know, distinct visual and, and narrative style and his whimsical characters. Um, his, his films are relentlessly detailed, and, and yet they're also so, like, simultaneously idiosyncratic. Um, and in any case, I think his films always manage to pull off this sort of substantial, like, these, these tonal shifts that uh, I think make the, their, his films both fun and also, like, surprisingly sophisticated. And so uh, Anderson got his start in filmmaking with a short film called Bottle Rocket, which screened at Sundance Film Festival in 1994. 
and his career kind of took off from there after it got a little bit of recognition. Uh, so uh, for me, what I'd argue is most notable about Anderson is that he seems to have a love for, uh, you know, tradition, uh, for film tradition, and for and, and he has as well this sort of pride in his craft that for me is especially always uh, sort of a delight to experience. And I have a hard time kind of picking what my favorite film of his might be because I enjoy each of his films, I think, for different reasons. And so... Um, with that out of the way, I'll get into a little plot synopsis of the film. So it is the 2009 adaptation of Roald Dahl's children's uh, short novel of the same title, and it tells the story of a clever, charismatic, stubborn, ambitious newspaper columnist, Mr. Fox, who is uh, relentless in providing what he considers to be a, a better life for his family and a bit selfishly for himself. Um, and, and regardless of the stakes involved with getting there, uh, Mr. Fox, who is seemingly never satisfied, plans and attempts a heist against three local farmers, only to then be on the run as the aforementioned farmers seek revenge against him and his family and his sort of community. Um, so I guess, um, as we did before, maybe we can get into some, you know, uh, sort of personal reactions, relationships with the film. Um, uh, Olivia, do you want to get us started? Sure, can start. Um, yeah, I also really love this movie. Uh, it's probably, it's up there with one of my favorite animated films. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's definitely my favorite Wes Anderson film. Totally fair. I think that stop motion animation really works well with Wes Anderson's style. I feel like it's almost perfect for him. <laughs> uh, just because of the amount of detail and the amount of control you can have in an animated film. And I think in terms of like using stop motion versus using other animation, you know, with stop motion, you still have control over the camera. So he can do all the things that he was doing in his live action films, but even have, you know, more control with uh, stop motion. Um, So I think it's really, it's really interesting how you can still see all of Wes Anderson in this film, despite it being stop motion. Um, And yeah, I just, I, think it's so clever the writing is so clever uh the voice acting is great um yeah i remember seeing this film in theaters and i don't i definitely did not appreciate it as much as i as i do now as you know as a kid seeing it but uh yeah i really love this film i can go next um so this is also my first time seeing this film uh, I am about ready to be ejected from film school for saying that the only Wes Anderson films I've ever seen now have been this one and the Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> oh my goodness. I don't know why. There's no reason. This is unacceptable, Alex. <laughs> I know. I know it is. And there, there's really no reason. Like, I have no, like, aversion to Wes Anderson or anything like that. It's just <laughs> for whatever reason, I just haven't ever gotten around to it. Um but I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was it was interesting. I wasn't sure. Um, again, like I don't have like a huge sense of like his his filmography, but like I wasn't sure how the like animation was going to um, like mesh with what I think of as being like very heavy cinematography that like we get in like the Grand Budapest Hotel. I wasn't sure what that was going to look like, and I, I ended up like really liking it because I, I feel like this was this was I guess maybe. I don't want to say like easier for him, but like you don't have to manipulate people in order to create like a beautiful um, set. Now it's like he he can manipulate like the figures and the objects and every little detail there is just so like, yeah, it's so him just like what Olivia says is so him. And yeah, no, I thought it was, I thought it was really good. It, it was an interesting uh, tone shift. 
as well going because I watched them back to back and I watched uh, Where Rabbit first. So it was an interesting tone shift going from Where Rabbit into uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. But yeah, it was great. Um, and as like a um, like literature major as well, um, I didn't realize that it was a Roald Dahl adaptation, but it really it really is like a Roald Dahl adaptation. Like I should have recognized that from like James and the Giant Peach and like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and like these these crazy worlds that that Roald Dahl like ends up creating and it just worked perfectly with Wes Anderson so yeah that's that's a I forgot about James and the Giant Peach and how that there's a stop-motion feature adaptation of that book as well so that is interesting something with Roald Dahl and (laughs) stop-motion I guess um for me, um, I think when I first saw uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, like Olivia, I think I maybe underrated it a little bit. I, I liked it, but I thought, oh, Wes Anderson made like his kid's movie. Okay, like I didn't, um, I guess, really appreciate it for, for what it is. Um, I sort of wrote it off. So, you know, over the years, just revisiting, I've noticed other things that have, um, you know, grown my appreciation for it. Uh like pretty much everyone said, this totally fits Wes in in so well with Wes Anderson's, you know, oeuvre, I guess. And, uh, you know, he is also a, a pretty important filmmaker for me personally. Like, uh, they used to show Rushmore on Comedy Central all the time when I was growing up, which is kind of funny. But um, that was kind of my introduction to him and his movies. And uh, he is one of those, like, you know, kind of gateway um, filmmakers, I think, for for you know, budding cinephiles. So uh, I was definitely happy to revisit this again and just enjoy, you know, his uh, really obsessive attention to detail. Um, and then, you know, just seeing that when it is fall and all the colors. Yeah, it was it was nice to to revisit this. Yeah, and before uh, moving on to the next section here of this conversation, I'll just say I quickly that I also very much love this film and it is in the argument for my favorite uh, Wes Anderson film personally I think it's between it and the Grand Budapest Hotel but I kind of go back and forth and then there's Moonrise Kingdom which I also love so much so anyways um, I'll say yeah I, I'm just floored by the um, attention to detail in this film the you know puppet design costumes sets cinematography the sound design I could spend a while on um, and it, it to double down on what Olivia said before, I think this is sort of, um, I think what Wes Anderson needed to be doing all along, uh, because he has so much control and you can, you can really respect the amount of time and effort that was put into this from, um, which seems to come from his mind. So, uh, with that out of the way, um, next we're going to talk a little bit about Fantastic Mr. Fox as an adaptation and in a little bit of research I did, I don't know if you guys have, any of you have read the short novel, uh, but, um, what I, I haven't myself, and what I came to learn is, so first, Anderson and his brothers grew up with a first edition book of uh, of the novel, uh, and so he, and they loved it, he had wanted to adapt it for a long time, and uh, as well as he wanted to get into stop motion uh, for a while as well, um, and so he, um, yeah, he actually said, I have a quote here, he said, one thing I've always liked in terms of stop motion are animals with fur. I like the way fur moves, and uh, the animators for the film said that uh, 
the way the fur moves, it's sort of like boiling because you can't really keep it still, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so Wes Anderson visited uh, Roald Dahl's house and wrote much of the film there. Um, the ending is actually adapted from his original manuscript of, for the story. So it's not directly adapted from the book, but it is adapted from uh, Roald Dahl himself. And, uh, you know, there's certain changes, um, you know, in the book. They don't have, like, real, like, you know, professions or, like, legal offices or, like, computers or, you know, post-it notes. Then, you know, this sort of, uh, this was, I think, in part adding to the character and humor of the tale and potentially maybe... Um, I think bringing humor for both adults and children again there, but um, it seems that this film really expanded on the story uh, in, in, in that it's an interesting, I guess, as we're going to talk about adaptation here, I think it's interesting to consider that maybe it's not just, you know, a straight adaptation, but perhaps, um, I don't know if I want to call it a sequel, but, you know, something, something that kind of goes beyond what adaptation really means, maybe. Um, Things like backstories are amplified, identities, you know, um, conflicts, there's new characters, uh, and, um, you know, the narrative needed to be longer because it's, you know, it's being adapted from a short novel into a feature-length film. And uh, so, although we get this, I think, respect for Dahl's uh, work and love for his work from Anderson, he also added so much of of himself to it, and so I think... Although it's an adaptation, it's also very Wes Anderson. So if any of you guys have any thoughts, um, feel free to chime in. I think just to add, um, I think that's one thing I always appreciate about certain film adaptations where they don't just try to put what's on the page on the film, um, you know, to do this super faithful adaptation, but rather really try to interpret the source material and you know, make it the filmmaker's own and and interpret it. That's, those are the adaptations I appreciate. Like, you know, when somebody says like, oh, I didn't like this because they didn't include this from the book or they didn't include this. Like, I'm, I'm kind of glad, honestly, because I, I want, I don't want to just see the book on screen. I want to actually see the filmmaker's interpretation. So just to, you know, uh, say that I, I like that he made those choices. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, support you on that read because um, I I struggle to to read um, like Raul Dahl's works. Like I just I for whatever reason struggle with the language a lot, and so like when I struggle with a book, um, I am often very likely to struggle also with the film if it's being like incredibly like accurate to to the source text, um, and that's just you know again like an issue of adaptation. Um, a lot of people have like the same issue when it comes to like Shakespeare adaptations or um, uh, I'm thinking who did Emma? Why am I blanking on this? Emma. Is that Jane? No, uh, what, what am I? Jane, Jane, Austen? Jane Austen. Yeah. Jane Austen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also struggle with with Jane Austen as well in like film adaptations because it's just like so it just dense source material and I, I feel like taking it and making it not only just like a an animation film which means that uh inherently it's kind of targeted towards younger audiences not that animation is inherently for children but this film in particular is kind of targeted a little bit younger um i think that that helps kind of uh naturalize it a little bit and then taking wes anderson's like version of it also also helps a lot with um uh understandability essentially yeah just to add a little bit to that um speaking on it being like for children versus adults um, 
yeah, I think that's a really interesting take on it. You know, take a children's take a children's story, and to me, it doesn't really seem to be for children at all. Like that's just my opinion on it. I feel like there's just just so much in it that's um, you know that. I guess that's part of why I didn't appreciate it as much as a kid because I, you know, there's so much, so many things in it, heavy stuff that I'm not going to understand as a kid. But that doesn't mean it wasn't still enjoyable to watch. So I think that's, I think that's really always a challenge with animation because people expect it to be for kids. So they're going to go take their kids to see it and no matter what the plot is about. <laughs> and I think that you can run into a lot of problems that way. So I, I'm always, I'm always glad to see filmmakers trying to push animation out of that realm of being just for kids even even though this was you know based off of a kids book um so yeah i have to say quickly yeah that's that's very true that point you made there about how it seems parents will take kids to any animated film uh quick uh uh point to that i when i went i remember when i went to see sausage party in theaters there was a family with two toddlers there at the, sitting right next to me and i'm like oh boy this is this is not this is not right so <laughs> did they stay the whole time they stayed the whole movie <laughs> they, they so maybe it wasn't a mistake then <laughs> no i don't think it was i think it was intentional but oh boy <laughs> yeah i was, I was gonna add to that um of this, an experience i had with um team america world police when i was a little oh bit too God. young but i think that the sausage party that that sums it up <laughs> <laughs> oh boy yeah anyway um <laughs> Well, uh, so we're going to talk a little bit as well, a little more about par- the parallels between both films. Um, Reed, where do you where do you want to start here? Yeah, actually, I'm wondering um, if we could start again like we did at the top of the episode, just talking about the animation of both films and just pulling in Olivia to talk about uh, their different approaches to uh, stop motion animation. Um, yeah, so these films really do have two very different approaches to uh, stop motion and just filmmaking in general. Uh, I think that Wallace and Gromit is, you know, fun. It's 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 like a fun film, and the the cinematography is not anything very specific. I would say, as with uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, it's Wes Anderson style. He he came in with a very specific idea of how he was going to do the cinematography, so that affected you know the entire look of the of the film. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting, you were talking about the fur, use, use of fur in uh, stop motion. It's like, whenever you tell a stop motion animator they're gonna, if you're gonna use fur, they freak out a little bit <laughs> because of the way that, like you said, the way that the fur moves, because you, you don't have much control over that. Because if you touch it, you know, the fur is gonna move a certain way and then it's gonna be like flickering as you're watching the, the film. And um, so specifically with Wallace and Gromit, I know that for the were-rabbit, they, they really put it a lot in there to make sure that the fur didn't move on uh, the were-rabbit's character, um, like the material they used for that. Um, they were very careful about that. And uh, for Wes Anderson, he was like, I love that. I love that the fur moves like that. We're just gonna go for it. <laughs> and we're gonna make the best out of it. And I think that I like when you can see the touch of the animators in the films. So to me, I, I don't even mind that boiling uh, thing there, but I think that's that's a really interesting difference to think about. Um, and also just in terms of the materials used, um, you know, Wallace and Gromit is uh, classically like clay. Um, and I, I'm not 100% sure exactly what 
the Fantastic Mr. Fox characters are made out of, but they definitely look like taxidermy, <laughs> like that kind of that kind of texture, and that just adds a whole different level of you know uh, feeling to to it and an emotion towards it. Um, yeah, no, I like that you brought up those differences though, and um, you know, especially with these films, there is such a contrast uh, because um, in some uh, interview with some of the folks from Ardman, um, I think it was Nick Park, one of the co-directors, was talking about even after they got this deal with DreamWorks and they had more resources and, you know, they were going Hollywood is kind of like how they put it. Um, but they they talked about how even though they had the um, these new resources, they didn't want to change, like, the basic look of the Wallace and Gromit characters, even though they could have. So I kind of almost love that, you know, with Wallace and Gromit, um, like you said, the, the animation is still obviously like very intricate and you can see that they put a lot of work into it, but then like on Wallace's snout, you can kind of see that it's clay. Like there's some kind of indentations there. Whereas like, I, I don't know, I feel like with Wes Anderson being so detailed, like fantastic Mr. Fox is just, there's so like the fur, you can see the fur and the clothes. Like it's just, um, you can see the contrast in detail and style, uh, you know, one kind of more seemingly like cartoonish and maybe rudimentary and one more, you know, um, way more detailed. If I could, I wanted to add a quick note, some a couple, a couple more little fun facts that I found um, in some of my research. Uh, so one thing I learned was that Wes Anderson used his own suit fabric for Mr. Fox and for his uh, because he he seemed to think that um, so he he loves the look of his suit and he thought well Mr. Fox would be the same way and he thought that corduroy might be a good look for him so he he decided to go with that which I kind of love I actually love his suit corduroy suit seems pretty pretty dope um, another thing uh, let me I'm scanning my notes here um, there's two other things so um, another little fun stop, uh, stop motion detail thing is that apparently the candles during the dinner scene are made of soap um, and they're still stop motion but I guess they received additional animation in post uh, which is which is pretty neat um, but the other thing um, I you know I obviously as I always say I pay a lot of attention to um, to to sound and um, the overall sort of soundscape and in this case something I, I thought was really interesting is uh, which I think is kind of aligned with you know the what we were talking about before with uh, Wes Anderson being comfortable with uh, allowing the the, the a sort of authenticity to be there with with like the fur of the animals, sort of loving how they move and going with it. And um, I think something that adds to that is that uh, the voice performances were originally recorded at a at a farm in Connecticut. So indoor scenes like in were recorded in like like barns and like houses and like cellars and outdoor scenes were recorded outside and so i think there's just this attention to like allowing for this sort of um texture this authentic sort of texture on the sound level and on an animated level which i think um i think was really successful yeah going off of the um texture of like the animation i i will say though that like if i wanted to touch uh any of the figures from these films, I think the ones that I would want to touch the most would be the ones from Wallace and Gromit. 
like i feel like the the wes anderson figures are like almost like too realistic like i think olivia used the term taxidermy or someone had used the term taxidermy and that's that's what it feels like like that's what it looks like it feels like um i don't really want to touch that but what i do really want to touch i really want to touch the wallace and gromit clay figures specifically the little bunnies like not the furry ones i want to touch one of these like little smooth bunnies and i just i want to know like what their squishability is like i like i'm kind of like devastated that like olivia you told me that like they have like these like metal like endoskeletons so i can't squish them but i feel like i feel like they would be really squishable if they didn't and i don't know why but that like um I don't know, because I, I guess just like the role that like the little bunnies play in the story where like they're constantly being like sucked up or like floating around or like smashed into things very cartoonishly. I don't know. That just seems like like the thing to do would be to like smush one. <laughs> There's a little bit of squishability, so you might be able to have fun, <laughs> some fun with that. <laughs> There's a lot of padding on that armature. <laughs> yeah, that's Perfect. that's that's such a good observation though i wonder if like some of these films are more appealing to certain folks who are really tactile and you know like to yeah it's like yeah you do almost kind of want to reach out and, and touch them so yeah that's that's a really great observation um you know moving into some like parallels between the movies it is really interesting that they both have they both feature conflicts between animals and people uh, from different points of view, and they both uh, are about communities trying, like how they come together in a crisis and deal with that crisis, and who they turn to in that crisis. Um, and then they also both ask like really interesting kind of questions about like, can an individual change like their nature, like who they are? Like it, it was kind of, and I, you know, this could have just been like projecting trying to find these parallels watching them together since we are new but uh since we knew they were going to be on you know this double bill but but i did think some of those themes were were uh pretty interesting and resonant so um yeah you know maybe we can just start with that question like what did what did you all think about how these films dealt with like how their individual communities dealt with like this threat and crisis and um you know, if that was something that stood out to you and, and if it did, like what your thoughts are on it. I think that's something that stood out to me. Um, and it's interesting to compare these two films because uh, that's something I would have never thought I'd be doing. But I love that, um, that this the intelligence levels of the animals, the, the difference in, in that. Um, I think that, you know, because obviously in Fantastic Mr. Fox, we're focused on, on like the, the animals being the ones, you know, like the main, main characters and then in Wallace and Gromit they're just kind of these weird bunnies <laughs> um, that uh, we don't really know much about how they feel about this whole situation um, but um, yeah yeah I think that that's an interesting interesting difference. I, I, I think with in terms of Fantastic Mr. Fox I think a lot of that film is about like embracing who who you are right and um, so I think that might be the first thing I think about when answering both of those questions, but um, it's also, you know, getting to the point I made earlier about like how, you know, there's these, they have in, in this adaptation and this variation, they have occupations and they have, so, so in a way it's like they all have their own role to play. 
When I look down this table with the exquisite feast set before us, I see two terrific lawyers, a skilled pediatrician, a wonderful chef, a savvy real estate agent, an excellent tailor, a crack accountant, a gifted musician, pretty good minnow fisherman, and possibly the best landscape painter working on the scene today. Maybe a few of you might even read my column from time to time. Who knows? I tend to doubt it. I also see a room full of wild animals. Wild animals with true natures and pure talents. Wild animals with scientific-sounding Latin names that mean something about our DNA. Wild animals, each with his own strengths and weaknesses due to his or her species. Anyway, I think it may very well be all the beautiful differences among us that might just give us the tiniest glimmer of a chance of saving my nephew and letting me make it up to you for getting us into this, this crazy whatever it is. I don't know. It's just a thought. Thank you for listening. Cheers, everyone. They're like sort of coalescing to this collective unit that can overcome, which I think is a theme that we get in um, in a lot of films. And when when there's this sort of crisis moment, it's like you know, there's more of us. That kind of that kind of uh, theme, I think. And so um, that's something that stood out to me with this for sure, with Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, that's and and you know there is definitely a contrast then with Curse of the Were Rabbit, where the community this time is humans, and you know there is like a scene where there's a town meeting, and um, later on we see the town all together at this competition, but there really actually isn't the same sort of like level of cooperation with like the human community. It's more like well we should rely on someone to do this for us, and. Um, it, there's more kind of conformity i guess and like panic and yeah hysteria just, yeah. yeah so so yeah that's it's interesting to see you know uh, two films together where the anthropomorphized animals are better at working together as a community than um than the the humans and and curse of the were rabbit yeah, I was I was also like remarking. I, I I was thinking about like the intelligence difference between the two films as well, very heavily, <laughs> because um, I think that it's so like I th- I think that's part of what makes the Wallace and Gromit comedy for me work is that like it's so like absurdly like unintelligent. <laughs> like I, I like at one point like they dress um, Ralph finds his character up as like a rabbit and they like feed him to the mob like. <laughs> Like that would like never work, you know what I mean? Like it just it has like this absurdist like level of like realism where like you have to just kind of like, you know, go for it. Like you just have to go right into it. And you don't really have to like have like these kind of like deep questions about like what is it trying to tell me? But I do anyway. And I, I'm glad Martin also that you brought up the um the the idea of like um the films being comfortable with like who you are as like being like the theme. Because like I, I felt like I was told that in the Fantastic Mr. Fox, but I felt like I felt that in Wallace and Gromit. Like um, when when Wallace like goes back into his human form after like smelling the cheese, or he likes the cheese and he likes the food, and like this was like all about him just like you know wanting to like be himself essentially like that's why like he was like angry and turning into bad rabbit or whatever like i don't know i felt that more maybe it's just i'm like very food aligned um and like i very much identified with wallace not wanting to eat vegetables um but yeah yeah i love that whole uh attention to not wanting to eat vegetables and then you know i loved the the on the on the the end title with just the rabbit just going cheese that like that killed me at the end of the film so yeah totally agree i think my my love for food also came out with this film too 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and yeah, the food is where you get that kind of theme where it's like, oh, well, these, you know, Gromit is trying to get Wallace on a diet instead of just eating cheese all the time, which is smart and <laughs> IRL, I guess. But, uh, um, um, but he keeps saying like, oh, this is food for rabbits. And then there's another scene where it's like, oh, it's just in these bunnies nature to want to eat vegetables. They can't help it. Like it, it is so interesting. Cause I feel like in a lot of um, like children's films or animated films that, that is like a pretty common theme, like be yourself. Um, but, but I, with both of these, it's, it's really interesting. Cause like, I feel like they relate it to almost like an animal kind of nature. Like we, we can't, even if we wanted to change who we are, we can't. So be yourself, which, you know, that, that might be present in other films and I might've just picked it up with these two, but that was sort of an interesting point of view that, that I got from both of them. Totally. And I think that's also parts of what, like that whole scene at the end with Fantastic Mr. Fox with the werewolf or with the wolf, you know, when there's that landscape shot and he just sort of raises his his paw up in the air i think it's like there's a respect level for like you know there's this whole idea of you know what a what a wild animal is with that film in particular and i think fantastic uh, mr fox recognizes that in the wolf and there's this sort of shared respect for each other which i think that's what that's all about but at first it took me a little bit i'm like what is this about like what why are they just like raising paws in the air to each other but i think that kind of gets to that point yeah yeah, anything else? Anybody, any other like observations or comments anybody else wants to make about the films? I think I've run through the list of, you know, what I had planned on talking about. But if folks have other stuff, I'd definitely love to hear it. I've been really enjoying this convo. I'm into the voice actors. That mm. was something that I, I wasn't, I, I'd expected that out of the Wes Anderson film to have like re- big recognizable names playing the voice actors. It was not something that I had thought about would be you know present in uh wallace and gromit but i've kept finding myself like i would hear someone's voice and then i would go like god that really sounds like helena bonham carter and ralph fines and i would like look it up and i just like would be like oh my god like that is them like what are they what are they doing in this <laughs> and it was like it's like this really weird like experience where like i feel like even though like they're voice acting onto animated figures like it feels like characters for them like those are like um helena bonham carter's character in wallace and gromit feels like a helena bonham carter character like that could just be her you know what i mean yeah i I love her like carrot dress at the festival i don't know why that that i think there's partly that just like that's very helena bonham carter this this sort of like great really well designed costume i don't know i love that and then like later when the were rabbits like eating the lettuce from the top that was like i love that so much Again, the childish humor just worked well for me. I believe that one of the critiques I read about Fantastic Mr. Fox um, was the voice acting and about how that was like, I don't know, I I think some people thought that it didn't fit, that the voices didn't fit with the characters, which I thought was interesting because I think they do. But maybe it's just like, they're so like the like George Clooney, and they're just so recognizable people (laughs) that maybe it was a little jarring to some people for that. But I don't know. I, I personally thought that they, they worked. <laughs> I'm actually curious, Olivia, what's the process like with, um, I guess, voice acting and like anim- stop motion animation or animation in general? Like, I guess I've never been never really known a lot about that. Do the actors like record the script first and then they do the animation so that it syncs up with like the mouth movements and everything? Yeah. So usually... Um how the process works is you start out with a storyboard and sometimes it's after the storyboard you have an animatic and it's basically just like 
playing through the storyboard in like a timeline format. So that's what you usually have before. And then you do the voices. So, you know, you can have the actor either read the script or look at the animatic while doing the voice. And so you would do it before the animation. So you know what to, the, you have, you have the voice to animate the mouth to or animate the, you know, the characteristics of the body to that voice. Got it. Got it. Cool. Yeah. I was wondering that as well. Cause like, just like with that character feeling so much like Helena Bonham Carter that like, it would be weird to me if like they had, you know, done the figure design, you know, shot the film and then hired her because it just, it feels like they made that character like for her. Um, so like, yeah, like that's really good to know that that's how that works. Cause I, I had no idea. I was like, oh my gosh, like, how is that her? How does that even work? All right, guys. Well, I think, um, despite how much I've been thoroughly enjoying this conversation, I think this is going to be a great episode. Um, we should, uh, wrap this up, uh, about now. So, um, first, uh, thank you, Olivia, for coming on the show and bringing in a lot of the context that we needed to talk about these films. Um, it was a pleasure to have you, and I hope we can have you on again in the future. We do hope to get into some more animated films, so uh, if that's the case, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to all of you. I, yeah, really love the films that you guys chose. Great. Thank you. And um, Reed, uh, thanks for um, you know getting in on this double uh, double feature uh, program with me. This was a lot of fun. I think these are two great films to watch together. Yeah, I totally agree. And I just remembered Wallace and Gromit, A Close Shave. That's what I couldn't remember. Of course, it comes to me at the very <laughs> end of the episode. But yeah, yeah no, I, I've loved doing this episode. It's been one of my favorites so far, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, so, yeah, that's it for our show this week. Uh, we hope you all enjoyed this conversation, and we hope you'll continue to join us for our uh, season of virtual programming. And um, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can follow us on Instagram at Cineposium and on Twitter at Cposium to keep up with our updates and to keep in communication with us. Thank you all again for listening. Until next week, take care, everyone. Yeah.